This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello, and welcome to another Dialogue podcast. Today, we're privileged to have one of the outstanding LDS scholars of our era, my friend, Armand Moss. I'm Morris Thurston, chair of the Dialogue Board of Directors, and I couldn't be more pleased to present this interview with Professor Moss, conducted as a session of the Miller-Eccles Study Group. If you enjoy this and other Dialogue podcasts, we hope you will consider subscribing or contributing to Dialogue so we may continue to bring you the best in scholarship by and about Mormons. For those who do not know, Armand was in the forefront of LDS scholars who helped shed light on the old racial folklores that surrounded the denial of the priesthood to black people. His book, All Abraham's Children, Changing Mormon Conceptions of Race and Lineage, is a must-read for anyone attempting to understand where we've been and where we are on this important concept as well as other issues of lineage, such as who are the modern-day children of Israel and who are the Lamanites. Armand is also the author of another important book, The Angel and the Beehive, The Mormon Struggle with Assimilation. In that book, Armand observed a phenomenon that could be applied to the church. I think it's worth reading a couple of paragraphs from his book at the outset for those who are unfamiliar or perhaps only vaguely familiar with this concept. So here goes, quote, If survival is the first task of the movement, speaking of new churches, the natural and inevitable response of the host society is either to domesticate the movement or to destroy it. In seeking to domesticate or assimilate it, the society will apply various kinds of social control pressures selectively in an effort to force the movement to abandon at least its most unique and threatening features. To the extent that the society succeeds in this domestication effort, the result will be the eventual assimilation of the movement. Failing to achieve sufficient domestication, the host society will eventually resort to the only alternative, persecution and repression, which Armand then goes on to point out could lead to the destruction of the movement. And then he says, quote, Movements which, like Mormonism, survive and prosper are those that succeed in maintaining indefinitely an optimum tension between the two opposing strains, the strain toward greater assimilation and respectability on the one hand, and that toward greater separateness, peculiarity, or militance on the other. Along the continuum between total assimilation and total repression or destruction, is a narrow segment on either side of the center, and it is within this narrower range of socially tolerable variation that movements must maintain themselves, pendulum-like, to survive. End quote. So quite a, a uh, interesting and, and challenging quote, and one that he will expound a little bit on during this interview. The most recent Armand book, is his fascinating memoir, Shifting Borders and a Tattered Passport, Intellectual Journeys of a Mormon Academic. Assisting me in questioning Armand in this podcast is my wife, Dawn Parrott Thurston, 
who teaches memoir writing at Santiago Canyon College and is the primary author of the book, Breathe Life Into Your Life Story, How to Write a Story People Will Want to Read. It is she who will introduce Armand to the group. I'm going to be telling you a little bit more about Armand than I, we typically do for our speaker introduction. First of all, I know more about him having read his interesting book, but also the questions that we're going to ask will require a little bit of context, and so it's, it helps you to understand some of the questions that we pose a little bit later on to know how his life unfolded. Armand Moss was born in Utah in the late 20s, but moved in 1931 with his family to Southern California and then a few years later to Oakland, where he grew up during the Depression and was ed educated at Bay Area schools. He describes himself as a willful and difficult child, but one who reached the age of 18 without getting into any serious trouble. Provocative, huh? You want to read about that. He was called to serve a mission in New England at the age of 18, and there's a story there. Why so early? Well, his father was the ward bishop, and there's a, a relationship with a girlfriend that plays into this, so you'll need to read and find out the juicy details there. On his mission, he had an opportunity to proselyte without purse or script for a time, and he developed a relationship with one of the, his mission presidents, S. Dilworth Young, who was an important influence in his life. Shortly after Armand returned from his mission, his father was called to be mission president of the newly reformed Japan mission. This was 1949, right after the war. Armand accompanied his family and was there for about four and a half years, where he completed his degree at Sophia University, a Jesuit institution, majoring in the history of the Far East and minoring in philosophy. He worked part-time to pay off his tuition in an army intelligence agency that debriefed repatriated Japanese soldiers who had been trapped by the Soviets in Manchuria. While there, he committed to a four-year stint in the U.S. Air Force, which he could do while continuing school. If I get any of this kind of wrong, you can correct me later. Sounds okay so far. Uh, he helped out at the Japan mission while there by working with LDS missionaries and served as the branch president of the LDS service branch in Tokyo. It was while serving in this capacity that he met Ruth, who had joined the U.S. Air Force and walked into church one day while Armand was conducting. They started their family right away after they were married. <laughs> it, was, it was very quick because by the time Armand and Ruth left Japan, which was the whole time he was there was about four and a half years, they already had two children and a third on the way. So that was a quick beginning to what would end up to be six children, and, uh, six boys and two girls in their family. After returning to California, Armand became a teacher at the high school and community college level for a while before eventually accepting what would become a two-year teaching opportunity in the sociology department at Utah State. That was followed by a long and fruitful career at Washington State University in Pullman, where he finished his work on his PhD at Berkeley and became more deeply involved in the sociology and religious studies and publications that mark his career. 
During that time, he authored his hallmark, Angel and the Beehive and All Abraham's Children, for which he has won awards and the book is cited in so many other scholarly uh, Mormon publications. I run into it all the time. And we're going to be learning more about those, those books tonight through the interview process. His career has also been memorable for his contributions to jo Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought his service involving long years on the board of directors and periodic editorial responsibilities. In recent years, he has been involved in the development of the Mormon Studies program at Claremont and has been a visiting professor there. His memoir with a tantalizing title, Shifting Borders and a Tattered Passport, was published late last year. And that's the book we're going to be talking about tonight. So I have a question for you. First of all, I have to tell you how wonderful this book is. It is a, a, a book that engrosses you from the moment you get started in it. Uh, as you all know, Armin is a wonderful writer. And he, his honesty throughout is refreshing. And he, he describes things in such a fresh way. It's just going to captivate you from page one. And so... After tonight, I'm sure you're going to want to, to pick up a copy to read it for yourself, but uh, I just wanted you to know how very much I enjoyed it. I, it was something that I started and I finished within uh, a couple of days because it so engrossed me. Okay, question one. Writing a memoir is a great deal of work. It can be a gut-wrenching experience for many people. You have to put yourself out there, expose yourself. A lot of accomplished people go through life and never write their life story because of the difficulties. And so my question for you is, why did you decide to write a memoir? I had to do something when I got so old that nobody would hire me. <laughs> may, I, may I begin with a word of appreciation for the great plug that Don just gave to the book. Um, coming from her, who with uh, Morris is author of the book on how to do autobiographies, memoirs, and personal histories, uh, her comments are great praise indeed, and I really appreciate that. I began writing this book as a, a personal history that would eventually be read by my children and my descendants. But I got sidetracked because as I began to write, the process kind of took me over and it became apparent after I'd done about 70 pages that this was not going to be a book for my children after all. It was a book about the things that preoccupied me during most of my adult life really outside the family. Now on the one hand uh, I have to feel a little bit sheepish about admitting that there was anything else in my life that was as important as my family. But on the other hand you oldsters like me will recognize that that's what we all believed uh, when we were young fathers and husbands. And so uh, <clears throat> The more I wrote, the more I realized that uh, the truly interesting stuff 
to anybody but my family would uh, would not be uh, so intensely personal. So I originally finished that manuscript without chapter one, and the publisher uh, had as one of my reviewers um, Levi Peterson. Uh, some of you will know his great work. And Levi said, well, you know, it's great as far as it goes, but we don't know anything about him personally. So Levi urged me to uh, write an opening chapter of a more personal kind, which I did. But thereafter, the book uh, became uh, uh, an account of the, the issues that preoccupied me, that preoccupied my mind in a way that my family and children did not preoccupy my mind. It isn't that I wasn't interested in the children, it's just that they weren't so preoccupying. Maybe they should have been. Uh, <laughs> they were too good. They were too good. They didn't ever get in any trouble, so it wasn't as though I, I was you know, always putting out brush fires at home. Now, of course, you will all recognize that most of the reason for that is Ruth, who um, was wonderful at managing a very big family to the point, especially with boys. Now, I think she sometimes used me as the, uh, as the ultimate uh, uh, sanction, but um, mostly she managed those six boys in a way that uh, just made them love her. I mean, uh, uh, who could pick on little Ruth? And so... <laughs> She was very good. She was. She grew up. They grew up thinking she was one of the boys, and that's the best thing you can say about a, a mother of boys. I'm waxing on too long, but that's but it, it, there was this transformation in my thinking about what kind of thing I wanted this to be. Okay. And so it, I still want to get back to the more personal kind of family book, but this morphed into a more kind of memoir of my professional experiences. I think you got some good advice about putting that in because that first chapter sort of provides the framework for understanding what yeah. happens after, and it's it's very uh, involving. And I'm glad you mentioned Ruth because I had a question later about that. He dedicates the book to her and gives her a lot of praise throughout the book for allowing him to be able to do what he needed to do with his work. In the preface to your book, you say... I begin this memoir with a degree of trepidation because it's a risky enterprise. One of the risks you mention is the difficulty of being honest about one's own weaknesses, regrets, and failings, but also honest about one's accomplishments. It's essential to do this if a memoir is to be taken seriously, and I think that you do it well throughout, and it makes it so much more interesting than had he whitewashed so much and was careful about the different opinions he had. So my question to you is, what were some of the struggles you encountered as you tried to come to terms with how to be fair and honest? Well, I guess uh, in, in large part it comes from my academic training. Uh, a lot of what I researched and wrote about both in the general field of sociology or religion on the one hand, and especially in my studies of the Mormons, uh, certainly required that to be academically respectable, 
an author needs to make an attempt at least to provide balance to you know admit that on the one hand I did this that and or believe this and that but on the other hand uh, maybe I was wrong uh, I think you have to do that uh, and incidentally I distinguish I'm glad you continue to use the word memoir because I distinguish between a memoir and an autobiography I think a well done autobiography or any biography is intended to be a work of history in which the author attempts to do a balanced study of a historical episode or period in the same way that he or she might do a study of anything else in history. And so um, uh, you, you expect with an autobiography a, a real effort at, uh, at, at uh, balance. With a memoir, it's a little different. A memoir is an account of events and episodes the way I, the author, remember them. And my memory might be selective, and I keep admitting that in the book. But it is at least the way I remember it. Now, if somebody else who participated in that episode remembers it a different way, that's just too bad. That person can write his or her memoir <laughs> the way he remembers it or she. So uh, I, I'm, I'm fairly uh, uh, easy on myself about going out on a limb in the way I remember things. But I do try to uh, catch myself whenever I'm writing to, to uh, be sure that I, that I, having done, you know, on the one hand, then getting to on the other hand. So I do quite a bit of on the other hand stuff to make clear that I recognize that the way I remember may not be the only way and maybe not the complete way. You do mention people by name and institutions by name, mm -hmm. which and occasionally they're not uh, discussed in the most flattering light. Mm -hmm. And did you have some hesitations? Did you do some softening of what you said? Or how did that Well, I right? thought about that in each and every instance. And the one thing going for me in writing this late in life is that almost all those people are dead. <laughs> so I don't really have to worry about that. There were, uh, there were a few, a very few instances of people I know are still alive and, and whom I met up in Pullman, Washington, and with whom I had uh, unpleasant relationships. And I have modified their names. The way I modified their names, though, I did it in a way in which any others who knew them at the same time I was there will know exactly who I was talking about. But anybody outside of that circle will not know who I was talking about. So I, I used that device a few times, but, uh, but not very many. I, I think m most of what I said about other people that they might, which they might take umbrage would be in the category of well, then you tell it your way if you don't like the way I told it my way. Uh, and, and I think that's legitimate. Naturally, the publisher uh, ran it through an attorney uh, to make sure there wouldn't be grounds for a suit later on. And so I don't think I did anything flagrant enough to uh, raise that specter. Aren't you curious now? <laughs> but with that in mind, did, it, did Levi or anyone else 
caution you about anything you said or tell you to admit or soften anything that you put in? No. Okay. Nobody, nobody suggested that. Uh, the editor changed while I was doing this, and the, the first editor wanted me to expand on a, a statement I made to the effect that I wasn't always a really exemplary member of the church. Um, that wasn't exactly what he said, but I think that was the point that came across. And he said, oh, hey, you got to elaborate on this. I said, hey, what is this, true confessions? You know, uh, I'm not going to say anymore. You know, uh, I'm, I'm just saying what I think almost anybody who's been a lifelong member of the church would have to say at some point about, you know, his or her own life. Uh, have you, what reactions have you had from colleagues and, and uh, the, in the church? Anyone, any church leaders or professional colleagues giving you some good feedback? Um, yeah, I'd, you know, half, half a dozen uh, people have uh, commented on the book and uh, uh, mostly favorably. So um, I, I would say that such feedback as I, has got, as I have gotten uh, has been gratifying. I haven't heard from any church leaders. Of course, I don't really expect to. I half thought that maybe my stake president would be here tonight because he came to hear the Gibbons, but he didn't come to hear me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm probably just as glad that he didn't. Okay. Uh, this is a question that comes from that chapter one, the, the personal sections, where you, I think in two pages you do a wonderful job of capsulizing who your parents were. It's, it's beautifully written, just so, so smooth. You describe your father as a self-made man who left school after the 10th grade to support his family. There were 10 children in the family. You say he grew up in a family where free agency, mutual support, humor, and reluctance to pass judgment were more important values than worldly achievement. And then you say that after your father's mission in Japan, he launched a lifelong program of self-improvement. And then you say of your mother, who was the Swede, that she grew up in a family that was pushed constantly to achieve beyond the usual expectations for the youth of her generation. Your mother attended the University of Utah and had a gift for vocal music and early on began a promising career in the opera, a gift that you shared, and apparently you toyed with that as a possible career yourself at one point, which I found very surprising. My question to you, and you can go with this however you want, is in what way do you see yourself as a product of your parents? (sighs) Well, I, of course, uh, appreciate having... uh, received in some form um, my mother's uh, uh, musical talents and especially her appreciation for classical music which I have uh, never lost of course Um, I also for my mother uh, I think I actually go into this a little in the book but uh, for my mother also um, I received a uh, a kind of lifelong love of learning for its own sake. That was where Mother was always coming from. She would tell me things. She would answer questions of mine constantly that I had never asked, uh, just because she thought it was important to know. 
So that was my mother's influence. She was very much in favor uh, of uh, intellectual expansiveness, uh, though not ideological expansiveness. That's different. My father, and I, I think that the influence of my mother was the strongest and the earliest in my life and uh, was not very well balanced by the influence of my father until much later in life. And I think I became a more likable person after I began to get more influence from my father. <laughs> and uh, his was mostly an example. You know, I, I finally came to see, um, after I was already well into my adult years, that my father's way of just live and let live, love everybody as much as you can, don't tell anybody else how they should live, but live the way you know you should live and let your example do all the talking. It took me a long time to learn that. I think I'm still learning, but uh, those are the things I feel I inherited most from my father. But he was not, a, he was not one who would have pushed me to, to be anything or do anything in particular in the way that my mother did. It's nice to have both influences. Uh, we're going to shift over for a little while now, Armand, to your particular writing career. You write that in 1982, and this you would have been in your mid-40s, your career suddenly took a turn strongly back into Mormon studies. It began with a lecture you gave at BYU in which you presented a theory that had never previously been enunciated by anyone. That lecture eventually culminated in the book the Angel and the Beehive, the Mormon struggle with assimilation, published over a decade later. Now, many of us here are familiar with the, the basic theory that you set forth in that book, but I know there are some that maybe are not. So can you kind of give us the, the encapsulated summary of what that was? Well, I'll do my best. Uh, <laughs> unaccustomed as I am to brevity. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it, it's basically a theory about a cyclical pattern in the history of the church uh, in which the church begins with a, uh, a commitment entirely to uh, otherworldly uh, and supernatural beliefs and practices uh, pretty much unmitigated by uh, worldly concerns and uh, that is accounts for a lot of its appeal. As the, uh, the population of the church grows and prospers, however, it tends to uh, uh, improve the membership in worldly ways, despite the fact that its message might still be very much otherworldly. And <clears throat> as that happens, then second and third generations uh, begin to, uh, to question the traditional teachings. I was about to say traditional myths as long as everybody will understand that in social science a myth is just a, an important not necessarily empirically proven story but it's one that uh, affects the way people look at their history. Anyway um, with the passage of time an increasingly uh, educated and sophisticated uh, populace in the church uh, begins to uh, redefine in some ways the uh, inherited myths and stories 
from the early days of the church and make modifications in it that uh, move more in the direction of the ways of the world. Um, and I symbolize the first of these motifs, uh, a totally supernatural one with the image of the angel, and the second motif, the more worldly orientation with the, mo with the symbol of the beehive. Now, up to that point, what I've suggested is not very new. Actually, for hundreds of years, social scientists have known that the typical pattern of a church, a new religion, is to gradually change from a uh, what's called a, a sect uh, to a, an institutionalized church, which uh, soon uh, uh, is assimilated by the other institutions in society and just becomes another institution in society, pretty much in sync with the rest of society. And so it's, it's, it loses its sect-like character. <clears throat> and uh, the, uh, if the LDS church were to follow that pattern, it would pretty much uh, move in the same direction as all the other denominations, including Methodist and, and uh, American Baptist and uh, Presbyterians and the other mainline churches today that have gone through that process. It's a process essentially of secularization where the supernatural becomes more and more depressed and the worldly becomes more and more important. Um, but what I saw in Mormonism was that that was only the beginning, that it was followed by a cyclical pattern. And in Mormonism, what I saw was that the second generation of church leaders, starting near the beginning of the 20th century, moved the church in this more worldly direction. They did it by giving up polygamy and giving up the United Order and looking for statehood and all of that, and then becoming respectable American citizens with a, with a uh, uh, traditional uh, Victorian family life. Uh, but uh, what was not expected, but which I thought I saw, was that after the war, after the turn of the century, still a new generation of church leaders tried to turn it back in a more sect-like direction and to re resurrect, as it were, the angel, to, uh, to, uh, to re-emphasize a great many uh, institutions and ideas in the church that had been attenuated or eroded during this period of assimilation in the first half of the 20th century. And, uh, and so, so to, to, be, to be concrete, the, some of the leaders you're talking about would be such as Joseph Fielding Smith, uh, McConkie. Well, yeah, uh, the, the, the leaders I'm talking yeah. about primarily are um, uh, Ezra Taft Benson and uh, Marky Peterson, Brother McConkie, um, J. Reuben Clark. J. Reuben Clark. Thank you. He was almost the godfather of these others. Um, and a number of associates of that of that same ilk, who became obviously discontented with the extent to which the church had come to be just much so much like all of the other American churches, and American respectability was very much sought after during that entire period. But after that period, this new generation of church leaders began to lead the church back again 
in, a, in the opposite direction, a process that I call retrenchment. And in that retrenchment, they, for example, uh, resurrected the idea, I say resurrected, I should say re-emphasized the idea, for example, of the importance of the Book of Mormon. In the first half of the 20th century, almost all teaching in the church was done out of the Bible, not out of the Book of Mormon. Uh, and that was, it wasn't that it was ignored, it just wasn't, didn't have the same status as the Bible. Because the Bible was what we had in common with other denominations. So we emphasized the Bible more. And we even emphasized the standard Bible of the English-speaking people. And in effect canonized the King James Version of the Bible, which has made it very difficult for us in non-English-speaking countries. <laughs> So, and besides that, re-emphasis upon missionary work, which had kind of fallen into disuse, re- constant reiteration of follow the prophet, follow the prophet, uh, and uh, uh, they will never lead us astray. That, those themes are, are almost ignored in the first half of the century, become very important in the second half of the century, and I could go on to some other things. The, the rehabilitation of genealogy and temple work, uh, which was, again, in almost in total disuse in the first half of the century. So that retrenchment process uh, then occupies uh, most of what I try to document in that book. Uh, Beginning with President Hinckley, there have been signs of a kind of a rollback in that retrenchment process. And we're now seeing a return again, I think, to a search for greater acceptance and respectability for the church by, uh, by the rest of the country. That's an awful... First of all, it's too long. Second of all, it's not long enough because it glosses over so much. But well, I, hope, I hope somebody will read the book. Besides, <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a great book, and you and you did a great job of summarizing it in, in a short period of time. I've got one kind of follow up question, and it's a little bit long, but it relates to where we are now in that continuum. And I'm thinking talking about a particular issue, but I could talk about a number of them. Today, women are finding their places in the workforce in ever greater numbers, and not just in positions that have been considered women's work. Uh, There are doctors, lawyers, soldiers, and corporate presidents. Many of them have have men under their supervision. This is true as well of many of the more mainstream religious movements. We're seeing women priests and pastors. Our sister church, the Community of Christ, has several women apostles. Now the church has lowered the missionary age for women by two years, and they're flocking into the mission field as never before. Returned missionaries tend to be more assured of themselves and more prone to assume leadership positions than those who have not served. Some people believe that at some point in the future, we're going to look at our all-male priesthood and say, this just doesn't make sense anymore in today's world. There's no reason why women cannot fulfill the roles that have been traditionally been for men only. Many people feel the day will come when we will move toward assimilation and women will be given the priesthood in our church. Your reaction? Well, my reaction is that um, I, can f- I would foresee the same thing. I think the church is headed in the direction of, of a, a, at least a greater access for women to positions of visibility and power and responsibility, not that they are free of those things now, but uh, but uh, even more so. The the question of the priesthood itself 
is a is an interesting one, and in some ways a separate one. Um, I think today's uh, feminists are, are are using the the um, issue of holding the priesthood itself um, as a symbolic uh, factor, as though once the priesthood has been bestowed on women just as upon men, then everything will be fine. That will be the measure that will symbolize true equality. At the moment, that is the opinion of a really, I think, small minority of LDS women uh, who are more interested in in the practical uh, actualities of responsibility and power and seem to be less offended by the fact that all of the hierarchy to whom they're responsible are men. So I do expect to see more and more movement in the direction of increased power and visibility for Mormon women. And ultimately, the trajectory I see would, would uh, mean bestowal of the priesthood as well. And by that time, I think more LDS women would be for it than are now. Having said that as a kind of inside observer and basic believer, and also one who loves all the women in my life, I will add as a social scientist that I would expect one result of that to be a gradual bailout of LDS men to, from positions of responsibility. I say that because that's what's happened in all of the other denominations. As women have, become, have come to occupy positions of ministry, the men have left. And so we're getting more and more female ministers, and even at women functioning as what are called pastors in the Catholic Church, where certain um, parish uh, organizations or parish congregations are actually run for the most part by women, uh, who call in the priest only when there are specific rituals that only priests can conduct, but they do everything else in managing the congregation. In Protestantism, it's uh, widespread now uh, to find that uh, women hold positions of ministers as ministers and pastors. And one of the reasons for that is <clears throat> that in our society, American society, historically, certain um, roles... Uh, that have been prim held primarily by women have been popularly defined as lower status roles. So you can have female elementary school teachers. Now that's okay because that's what women are for. But you're re more reluctant to have women in administrative positions, especially upper administrative positions, even in school systems. Um, and the same has been true with ministers. 200 years ago, for a man to be a minister or pastor or priest or, or a rector was uh, prestigious. He got well paid and was lucked up to everybody in the, by everybody in the community. Now that prestige that was traditionally associated with male pastors and ministers has diminished enormously. And the pastorate has become... Uh, much more uh, defined much more as a relatively low status uh, position and so 
it's more appropriate now for women to occupy those positions. I hope you understand that I'm not advocating that this is the way any of this should be. I'm just saying this is the way it looks to me. And this is why I would expect that as women became more and more important in the, uh, in the, structure, in the uh, structure and leadership of the church, men will become less and less active. That's my prediction. And so there may be, you know, I don't know if anybody besides me has thought of this, but I suspect others have. And if so, <laughs> that could be a kind of a strategic reason why many church leaders don't want to see this priesthood thing go any farther. I don't know. Well, I think it is probably a, a proven fact that for the most part, women tend to be more drawn toward religious religions and religious thought in general than men. Well, in our culture, maybe, yeah. Yeah, because we're, we need to keep moving on. I want to turn to another book. You write that this book, All Abraham's Children, Changing Mormon Conceptions of Race and Lineage, is, is your magnum opus. During your lifetime, you've seen some pretty dramatic changes in the Mormon conception of race and lineage. And I'm going to throw out three classes of lineage, one at a time, and I just would like you to summarize how you've seen our ideas about them change during your lifetime. And again, just briefly, but Lots of uh, here you go. <laughs> Israelites. I guess I can answer that by referring kind of to the, one of the main themes of the book, namely that uh, as, as LDS missionaries began, especially in the early and middle of the 20th century, to go out and do missionary work in all kinds of places, some of which were pretty exotic, they found receptivity to the gospel in some of these places, some really unlikely places, uh, like, for example, Polynesia. Uh, and uh, uh, as that began to happen, the traditional LDS idea that receptivity to the gospel would be found only in places where there were concentrations of ancestry called the blood of Israel. Uh, that idea began gradually to erode because we began to find that kind of receptivity everywhere. And in, as that happened, why the notion that uh, there was something special about the Israelite ancestry uh, began to change, and we turned back to something that had been taught in the earliest days of the church by uh, the Apostle Paul, which is that when, when we accept the gospel, we all are Abraham's children. That the crucial thing is acceptance of the gospel, not your literal genealogical ancestry. And, and the early or at least people of my mother's generation were of the strong opinion that the real Israelites were somehow found in Northern Europe. Absolutely, uh, Northern Europe and Britain and Germany primarily. Yeah. Because in the, late, uh, in the middle of the 19th century, we got a real bountiful harvest of converts from all those places. Right. Well, by 1880, they'd quit converting. <laughs> and so uh, missionaries went elsewhere and uh, you've got some, I may have quoted it in the book, but you've got lots of statements by church leaders in the late 19th century to the effect that uh, we've gotten all those Israelites now out of Northern Europe, so, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, fortunately, my Israelite ancestors got over here from Norway. Uh, yeah. the, uh, what about the Lamanites? How have we changed our concept about them? 
Well, <laughs> that, uh, that changed too in large part as a result of our experiences with evangelization, with missionary work and all of that. So uh, during um, all the 19th century, why most of the members of the church and the church leaders were convinced that the Lamanites were primarily the uh, people, uh, the, the aboriginal peoples of North America. And so the missionaries were sent out to, to them early on, and they continued to be a preoccupation of the church up through at least the uh, administration of President Kimball in the, in the 20th century. And the church, as uh, many of you will, will know, had an enormous program to uh, not only convert uh, Aborigines, I'll call them Indians, not only to convert Indians, but also to uh, uh, get them through high school by placing them in white homes, uh, get them fellowships at BYU, scholarships at BYU so they could get college education. And, and in that sense, George P. Lee was a kind of a, of a model uh, of uh, what the church was hoping all LDS Indians would be or would become. And, uh, uh, but um, by about 1980, it became apparent that uh, while a lot of Indians were joining the church, very few of them were sticking with it. And, uh, the ones that, and, and a lot of Indians benefited by the placement program and, and the BYU scholarships, but their benefit was primarily uh, of a secular kind. They did much better in, at work and in life and their careers, but they weren't any more active in the church. So to make a long story short, which I'm sure you want me to do, um, in, in about in the late 70s or about 1980, uh, uh, President uh, or Brother Packer went down to a big celebration at BYU for Indian Week, and he announced, in effect, I'll put words in his mouth, um, he didn't say it quite this directly, but what he said in effect was, all right, you Indians, we've been doing all these things for you for, for decades. And what we were hoping was that you would then become the missionaries of the future and go and, and uh, teach your brethren in other parts of the hemisphere, uh, which, of course, North American Indians didn't recognize as their brothers at all. But uh, so President Brother Packer, in effect, says, however, you haven't done this. You're not even staying in the church yourself. So you've had your chance. We're, we're not going to keep butting our heads against the wall for you people. You're not joining the church. You're not staying with it. From now on, we're going to go down to where the real Israelite Indians are, which is Latin America. So from that point on, the whole emphasis of the church switched to Latin America. There had been missionary successes there earlier, uh, but, uh, but it, that's when the church's whole thrust about, about converting Lamanites uh, went to uh, the southern hemisphere where it has worked out very well. We got a question now as to what to do with the traditional mythological concept that that the people of Aboriginal descent in Latin America are really Lamanites and should embrace that identity. In fact, many of them did embrace that identity when they joined the church in previous decades and are now uh, kind of 
at sea when they find out that uh, the church isn't teaching that so much anymore. Uh, in some ways it is. President Hinckley, every time he dedicated a temple in Latin America, he his, his dedicatory prayer spoke of serving the children of Lehi that lived in that area. But that's about the only one. Uh, the, the idea uh, that... that uh, all the converts to the church that have Indian ancestry are Lamanites is eroding from the, the teachings of the church. And that is kind of creating a problem for those folks down there for whom that identity was really important. Okay. What about a third category, uh, black people? Well, uh, that's, we that's, you know, that's what most of us think of when we think about Mormons and race. We think about the black people. You know, long short of it is that uh, I, I join uh, uh, in jubilation with everybody else that uh, the priesthood is no longer denied to people of that ancestry. But uh, I'm, uh, I continue to be distressed that the church has never repudiated the teachings on which that restriction was based. Well, that's kind of a question I, I wanted to ask you and expand on a little bit. We had these so-called myths or folklore about the reason that the priesthood was denied to black people. And just to summarize quickly, it seems like there's maybe at least three. One was that they were less valiant or were fence-sitters in the pre-existence. Second was that they were the seed of Cain, and hence cursed for that reason. A third reason that was enunciated just last year by a BYU religion professor is that they were being protected from from the lowest rungs of hell because you couldn't fall off the top of the ladder if you never got to the top of the ladder. So in a way, it was a blessing for them not to have yeah. the priesthood. <laughs> and I guess what I'm asking is, how are we in 2012, 13, well, this was 2012 when this happened, how are we still wedded, some of us anyway, to these, uh, these old folklores and what can be done about it? Well, most of that old folklore really is not a Mormon invention. It came into the church with converts to Mormonism. It goes back 500 years, actually, to Europe. Um, when white Europeans first encountered black Africans, they didn't know what to do with them or, or where they came from. And, uh, and so a lot of theories were developed, even uh, that there were, was more than one creation, one for black people and one for white people, and all of that. Well, so the various explanations, which I put in quotation marks, the various explanations for all this that uh, came into Mormonism that we now regard with such uh, uh, horror, <laughs> those came in from elsewhere uh, with our converts. But there are some unique Mormon ideas that you referred to because, uh, as you know, Mormons like to believe that we have all the answers. And if somebody asks us a question and we don't seem to have a good answer for one, we have to make it up. And so there's a long history of different members of the church and leaders of the church uh, more or less spontaneously improvising with explanations for what, how we got black people and why they couldn't hold the priesthood. Um, since the, the church has dropped the, the restrictive practice uh, and now gives the priesthood to everybody, or all males anyway, the, uh, I think most of the ch church leaders and maybe even most white Mormons 
seem to think that there's no problem anymore. But there is, because for some uh, converts, recent converts, and especially black converts, that folklore out there sits there and is constantly uh, uh, being cited even by BYU professors, religion professors, no less, uh, as recently as uh, early 2012. So it's still out there. I think uh, uh, until there is a formal repudiation at the level of the First Presidency with a statement saying the church and, and it, the church leaders once taught this stuff and they believed it. And they used it to try to explain why blacks could not have the priesthood. But they were wrong. It should not have been taught. It should not be taught anymore. Until that happens, this is going to keep coming back again and again. And it might be uh, Randy Bott in 2012, but it's going to be somebody else, um, you know, eventually later on until that is really put away. It's a problem. It's a problem for a political reason, ultimately, because critics of the church, both people who are inside the church and critics outside the church, when, if and when the church issues this kind of public repudiation, I'm talking about, there will be those who will say, "Aha! So you were wrong about that. What else have you been wrong about?" And that's a political issue. A public relations issue, and I think it's that issue that's hanging up the the effort that needs to be made to clear the air with this kind of total repudiation. And it, in the book, I go into an incident where where Elder Marlon Jensen tried to to do this. Yeah, and you know, I, I was going to ask you a little bit more about that, but I think we need to turn the questioning over to the congregation. Yeah. But for any of you that are interested, uh, Armand was involved uh, in a very interesting uh, incident where we maybe came close to having such a repudiation. You can ask him about it uh, during the, the after session. Dawn does have one question that she'd like to ask, and then we'll open it up. Okay. Throughout the book, there's an ongoing theme. I think there's a tension between your scholarly life and your religious life and having a foot in both worlds and having uh, reconciling your beliefs with your scholarly studies and, and there's just a, a tension with that and you, you sum it all up very well I think in the last uh, section of the book that's titled Faith, Hope and Charity and you say there that you briefly describe why and how you've remained in the church despite being as you say disenchanted or disenthralled. You say your disenchantment has inoculated you against disillusionment. There's a lot of disses there. And I wondered if you might explain this further and explain in what ways your disenchantment has kept you in the church. Well, I, I, I cannot credit any particular what's the word? Perspicacity perspicacity of my own uh, for for that uh, situation. It's primarily, I think, because of my training as a sociologist, and I came to see the church as operating pretty much like any other social institution. Um, 
that uh, I know that as Latter-day Saints and as a believing Latter-day Saint myself, we are committed to the idea that the church was established by divine intervention in history. So it has a divine origin. But my experience and my reading of the history of the church is that after it was established, it came increasingly to operate pretty much like any other social organization. In other words, uh, in, in, the, in the language of our early founders, uh, the Lord in effect said, okay, here's the church, it's yours, you've got the priesthood, you've got all you need to know, so now run the church, it's up to you. Um, I, I wasn't there for that conversation, I don't know if that ever happened, but I'm saying that, that as I look at the history of the church, compared to the history of other denominations, the history of other social organizations, I have to say, it, for, to me, with, with the possible exception of, of occasional crucial interventions, and I'm not competent to say what those are, but with those possible exceptions, the church, church operates pretty much like any other social organization. For that reason, my expectations for the performance of church leaders are very modest. <laughs> It's not intended as a disrespectful statement. It's just that I look upon them as these, these, these poor guys who have got this awesome responsibility of trying to run a church that sometimes must seem a lot like herding cats. Um, they, they are not, any of them, qualified to deal with the theology of the church. We don't do theology in Mormonism. We do doctrine, but not theology. Uh, and they, re- they react to organizational predicaments in the same way, I think, that leaders do in any other social organization. And there are uh, similar concerns. There are power concerns between different individuals or groups of individuals. There are personal commitments uh, that are that, that guide the way they think and the choices they make. And if we believe in a church that's guided by revelation that results from um, uh, uh, inquiries from church leaders, that's what we're taught. Revelation comes in response to inquiries, either our own or our church leaders. If that's the case, then some church leaders, like any other leaders, sometimes some of them are going to ask and some of them aren't. And some of them are going to ask often, and others not so often. And so there's an enormous variation in the way that the process of revelation expresses itself in individual church leaders. And so, uh, as I say, for that reason, um, I don't. I, long ago, I got over the idea of adulation for church leaders. Uh, I saw the mistakes that were made in so many ways even at the local level when I served in bishoprics and the like, uh, that uh, I very soon, before I, was, uh, before I was 40 at least, it was clear to me that, uh, that adulation was not in order and it was actually harmful. And so I, I gave that up. And that's a process that I call disenchantment or disenthrallment. So, you know, my heart doesn't pound when I see a general authority now. But that has inoculated me against disillusionment, which to me is not only disenchantment, 
but a, uh, a disaffection. Uh, and I've never become disaffected with the church because it's operated pretty much the way I would expect. And when, uh, when the things get screwed up, either at the local level or the general level, why well, I say, well, you know, sorry for them. I'm glad that's not me in that position. I basically appreciate what they try to do, but I don't expect too much. And that has kept me from, you know, walking away from the church more than once. <laughs> well, thank you, Armand. That, uh, that has been very interesting. And I'd like now to just open it up out there, ask some questions. Yes, Dean. If, if you're saying that the concept of blacks and, and the priesthood started 500 years ago, how did other religious denominations solve the problem that we didn't have solved? Well, they didn't solve it. They didn't solve it before about 1965. The Mormons are just about a decade late. That's the only difference. And the Mormons had a couple of wrinkles in their, in their folklore about this. But the basic idea that blacks should be kept out of leadership positions was permeated every religious denomination except, of course, the black denominations like AME. So, uh, uh, as I say, it took the Mormons longer, I think partly because uh, Utah was more isolated from some of the, the major trends of the country, but, uh, and also the, uh, the folklore like uh, uh, what happened to the war in heaven, uh, that, that's found in the Pearl of Great Price, which wasn't really canonized until the late 1870s or 1880. And, and those ideas that we now think of as the peculiar Mormon ideas about the blacks and the pre-existence were not part of the early reasons for restricting the priesthood of blacks. The earliest reasons were all the same ones that were used by Protestants. Mormon, I, I, I'd like to press you. You're talking about this the church acting like any social organization, but, but in your concluding statement, you, you say that uh, your epistemology is that the truths are social constructs. Right. And that tells me it isn't just that the church as an organization is social, it's the very foundational truths and and uh, the epistemology of the church is also a social construct. And I suspect that's not very consistent with what most people would say when, when they say, I know or I right. believe. That's a different kind of construct than your social construct. Yeah, well, in one or more of the chapters, I, I go into the question of how I came to understand reality and truth as social constructs. That's maybe a little deeper, I don't know, than, than the audience tonight wants to go into, but uh, it's basically the idea that, that uh, there is, for all practical purposes as we live our lives, there is no way of knowing what is the ultimate reality, the ultimate truth, as, say, would be seen by God. That everything that we come to believe is real or true, we have inherited from the communities and the families in which we have been brought up. And that's the only truth there is, in the sense that it's the only truth and reality to which we have access. Now, there may well be out there 
in the heavens, a true, objective, incontrovertible truth or reality known to God, but we don't have access to it. Now, I know that many present here and many in the church will likely say they, when they bear their testimonies, they're saying that they know that there is such a thing out there that's true, and they know that, and they know what it is. And I'm saying, if that works for you, fine. But it doesn't work for me. I've never been that certain that I knew for sure the truth and reality of, of the universe in the same way that God knows it. Uh, everything I know is a social construction that was passed on to me from, from other places. Now, so why don't I just kick it all over and say, well, that being the case, you know, it doesn't matter what church I belong to or, or what I do. And I, the answer I try to give in there is that, well, look, we're all in the same boat on this. So what everybody has to do, no matter what family you grew up in or what country you grew up in, what everyone has to do is choose what will be your definition of reality. I chose. I'm a Mormon, and I accept the Mormon definition and understanding of reality because I choose to. That's my only reason. I can't prove it. I don't know if there's any way to prove it. But I accept it because I choose to. In other words, it's an act of faith. So how else do we know anything except as an act of faith? So I think it comes back to the same thing. Just, just to sort of reinforce that point, I, you know, nowadays the physicists believe that only 4% of the universe is visible, or, you know, detectable in any way, which is a, an enormous change from when I was young. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Yeah. Are you calling somebody? Yeah, you go ahead, Barbara. Okay, uh, young lady there. Yes, I was wondering from a sociological viewpoint how much the effort to convert the American Indians per se um, depended to some extent on their absolute reliance on the government in many parts of the United States, both on reservations and in terms of, I mean, if you didn't stay an Indian, you certainly weren't, the, the government benefits per se, whatever they were, were not available to you, and the stigma of being an Indian was significant. So I'm just wondering if that didn't have an interplay in the church's effort. Maybe relatively late in history that could have been a factor, but you know, <coughs> overtures made by our church leaders to Indians go back to the 1830s. And uh, they certainly were not on any government doles at that point. They were simply being thrown out of the country. Right. I, ironically, you know, the, the Trail of Tears, the great march of Indians from southeast over to Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma <coughs> Territory, just beyond the Missouri River, was, was taken by the Prophet Joseph and others to be a, a providential development mm -hmm. that put the Indians right next to Zion so that the Mormons would have access to them. Um, and uh, I think the original efforts to work with Indians were more on a, uh, an equal plane, that is, a desire to deal with them as equal equals, as equal Israelites, one might even say. Uh, and, you know, there was early talk about intermarriage and so on, and the earliest teachings of the Brethren 
were that it was up to the Mormon missionaries, who were originally defined as Gentiles, by the way, to bring the message of the gospel to the Indians, the Lamanites, so that they in turn would then bear the responsibility for spreading the gospel throughout the earth. And that got turned around in the Utah period, but that was the original plan. So this whole idea of dependency of the Indians is really uh, more of a 20th century phenomenon. Son Steve, yes. you're awake. <laughs> well, actually, uh, you know, I, I, growing up in the Moss household, um, I was often the one that uh, asked rather difficult questions of my father. And uh, that got me into all kinds of trouble, just so everybody knows. I to preface my remarks to that. <clears throat> I'm no better at brevity than he is either. After reading your book, it, it, uh, you know, I have a question similar to the one that was asked earlier. You're, you're putting forth the idea that social constructs drive truth or, or drive the basic tenets of a religion, in this case the one you've chosen. And it, it seems to me that sometimes religion drives societal constructs the other way around. For example, in the Muslim world. Do you see an interplay between those two? And if we all get to choose our own truth, as you're saying, um, do you believe that one is more valid than the other? For example, um, does the church, the LDS church, have the authority, the priesthood authority from God to the, uh, to the point that we can offer eternal life and exaltation? to all mankind, whereas others do not have that same authority. I accept the claim that the church does have that authority, and I order my life accordingly. But that is a choice that I've made. Uh, that's all I can say. I, I can't prove it to anybody else. It, it's no good saying, well, let's test it by some other concept over here, because that's a social construction too. We don't have access in this world to anything except social constructions of reality. We'd like to have, but we don't. And if you say that because of my testimony, I know that this particular construction of reality is true, I say to you, great, go with it. I don't have that level of certainty about any of it. But I've decided to order my life as though I am certain about these things, as a matter of choice. Because we all have to decide how we're going to live our lives and what code of life we're going to live by. And, and you, you know, one thing about this understanding of truth and reality is that it's not replicable. It can't be passed from one person to another. If you tell me, if you bear your testimony to me, that you're certain that the, the LDS definition and understanding of truth and reality is the same as God's, then and I ask you, well, how do you know? All you can do is bear testimony that you know. You can't share that with me. You can't, as I say, it's not replicable. You can't replicate it in another person. And that's the predicament we all have 
with our religious commitments. They're not replicable to other people. And that's very different from the uh, traditional European positivist, empiricist approach to understanding reality. In the traditional approach, you identify what are the reasons that you hold a certain view of truth and reality, and you can explain how you got to those reasons with the empirical evidence that you followed to do that. And you can let somebody else replicate that process, try to do the same thing, see if they get the same result. Now, if you're doing a chemistry experience, experiment, they'll get the same result. If, uh, if you're doing religion, you don't necessarily get the same result. All of us have had the experience either as missionaries or later, of bearing fervent testimony about the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, promising because of Moroni 10, 4, and 5, that if you will pray, do this with a sincere heart, with real intent, you will know the truth of it. We've all had the experience of having people claim that they had done that conscientiously without getting the testimony. It's just not replicable. All you can do is hope that if somebody ardently prays and tries to understand and invite the Spirit, that they will have an experience, a spiritual, emotional experience, that will be convincing to them of the truthfulness. But there's no guarantees. And I'm happy to live with that. Up in the top. Hey, Army, do you, do you believe that uh, if you had uh, not been brought up in a Mormon family, uh, that you would find yourself after 40 years, uh, you would have found yourself going to uh, becoming a member of this church. And the second question is, um, do you, uh, in your in your travels, uh, is there a church that you think uh, would be your next best second choice? Well, I'll answer the, I'll answer the second one first. No, you know, for, for me, uh, there are so many things about the Mormon religion that I like because they're fun and they're intriguing. And Mormons are more funny than anybody. Um, and, uh, um, and the, um, you know, I'm intrigued by the teachings of Joseph Smith. He's got so much left out hanging out there that we've got to look into that if, if we care. Uh, I No, I could never join any other church. I'd probably just stay away from religion. I wouldn't be an atheist necessarily, but I just wouldn't be participating in any church. And in your first question, uh, I would again have to say, no, I I don't think that if I had not been brought up in the LDS church, I don't think I ever would have joined. Uh, certainly not after I got, uh, uh, you know, uh, some education. I don't hope nobody's terribly disappointed about that, especially my children. Your children may have had the same experience. Yeah. What did you say, Fred? You think your wife would have brought you along? Even after 40? No, I don't. I don't think my wife was any more uh, devout than I was. Uh, maybe not as devout. Uh, I'll let her speak for herself on that. But, uh, and she ain't talking. <laughs> she, came, she came from a family that was, you know, pretty uh, lackadaisical about religion. Am I doing you justice, dear? Or? Why don't we have a, another question, and then I think uh, we'll call an end to the uh, formal session.
No, I think we back. got three. Maybe we can do a couple of them real quick. <laughs> In reference to your remark that politically uh, some authority in the church should admit that they were wrong about the blacks. Uh, the fair block, the apologetics, uh, does a lot of research, as you know, and their research states, and I've read the block and I, blogs, and I can't um, quote them exactly off the top of my head, but they claim that the general that no general no doctrine was ever presented that the blacks did not deserve the priesthood. Well, I know I know the fair site really well. In fact, uh, got one of my articles in there somewhere on the black issue. Uh, a lot depends on what you mean by doctrine and what you mean by folklore. Another big problem in the church: we don't have a definition of what. What constitutes doctrine? We don't have a list. Now, all these things are doctrines, and everything else isn't. We don't have uh, we don't have uh, all of the teachings of the church that have can be found in the record designated as either doctrine or not doctrine, or designated as folklore. And so, as a result of that, you get uh, there's a, a recent article that's just come out in the John Whitmer journal, which in effect takes the task, my idea, well it doesn't mention me by name, takes the task, my idea that uh, the, uh, the basis for our policy on black people never was doctrinal, it was always folklore. And this author says, well, okay, you can call it folklore if you want, but if it was taught by living presidents of the church, either before or after they became presidents, if it was taught by most of the apostles, and it was taught by, you know, most of the bishops and state presidents in the church over a period of 50 years, and was taught as truth, if you want to say that's not doctrine, fine. Call it folklore or whatever makes you feel good. But it was taught as though it was truth. truth. And there's no way around that. But Armin, don't you think the new changes to the scripture really was a big step in the church addressing that? Well, the... When they it, put the intro to the declaration? Yeah. Well, the, you're talking about the new introduction to yeah, introduction. Uh, official declaration? I just thought that was well, amazing. Well, no. Although nobody knows it happened. It, it, it's, a nice, yeah. it's, a nice, uh, it's a nice change. It, it does say that, uh, that the, for the first time, it's an official statement to the effect that black people once held the priesthood and the church just stopped giving it to them and nobody knows why. But that's not the same as repudiating well, they, they the explanation. Well, they call it a practice. What? They call it a practice. Not a, they, it's called a practice, not a doctrine. Well, okay, but what do, you do with, what do you do with all of the venerable leaders of the church for half a century who called it doctrine and said it was true? You still got to deal with that. I found a back door to that on the church's website for the last seven years. There's something called Approaching Authoritative Doctrine. And boiled down it says, The authoritative doctrine binding on the members of the church is what's in the scriptures, articles of faith, official declarations and proclamations. And so that's kind of what I use as a back door out of that. Well, that's Toward, fine, but... Of course, there was an official proclamation that called that a doctrine. Yeah, the one in 54. Uh, yeah, I... I I think we need to probably 
call this to a halt, but this has been, I think, a fascinating discussion. Uh, there are so many good things that Armand has, has gone into in, in his two books that we are indebted as members of the church to him for having really helped flesh these out, and it's given us all a lot to think about, and, and I've been thoroughly entertained by his responses to these questions, so thank you very much, Armand. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.